Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Andrew S. Barish about his book, Lonesome Roads and Streets of Dreams, Place, Mobility, and Race in Jazz of the 1930s and 40s, published in 2012 by the University of Chicago Press. One of Barish's arguments here is that big band dance jazz of the 1930s and 40s, think of the Benny Goodman Orchestra, provided Americans with models of personal and national self-understanding. These were tough times. The Great Depression, World War II, and an insistent drive toward racial integration resulted in a populace on the move geographically, culturally, and ideologically. Barris suggests that the big band industry of the day created the spaces and places where the nation came to understand this movement. He begins with a discussion of the casino ballroom in the city of Avalon on Santa Catalina Island off the coast of Southern California. Here we find a geographically isolated place with a conservative attitude toward the changing times. They hired only white musicians and bands that played a relatively subdued, sweet style of dance jazz to overwhelmingly white audiences. Next comes Charlie Barnett, a white band leader who dared to play hot jazz for both white and black audiences, thus creating new spaces for African-American music and musicians in America. A third focus is upon Duke Ellington and how his work can be seen as part of a narrative that follows African Americans' great migration from the American South to the cities of the North. Specifically, Barish analyzes a 1946 performance of the Deep South Suite at the Chicago Civic Opera House as an example of Ellington's ability to play a part in the geographical movement of black people through music. Barish's final case study is of Charlie Christian, the groundbreaking black guitarist from Oklahoma City who played with the Benny Goodman Orchestra and through constant touring and playing was an embodiment of the movement happening all across the American landscape. All in all, Barish's detailed historical, cultural, and ethnomusicological analysis of these artists and the places they played makes for a convincing argument that to understand music, one must understand the times in which it is made, and one way to understand the times is to understand the music which is made within them. Andrew S. Barish lives in Tampa, Florida, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Andy, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hello. Uh, thanks for being with us. Um, why don't we start by uh, having you just tell us a little bit about your biography, where are you from, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Uh, well, I was born uh, and grew up outside of Boston in uh, a suburb, Sharon, Massachusetts, and um, I uh, went to college in New York City and did my graduate work at UCLA in musicology and got my doctorate in 2005 in in musicology. Um, I got interested in jazz um, in high school. I had a really terrific uh, jazz teacher in high school, Bob Sinecrope, and uh, he uh, was uh, taught jazz improvisation classes and became a mentor to a lot of people, uh, some who became professional musicians. And uh, that kind of instilled this desire to play and, and later to write about uh, jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and at UCLA, I found a musicology program that was uh, kind of tied together my interest in history and um, American studies with, with 
with music and uh, musicology as that was um, kind of traditionally understood and then in a more expansive way uh, at that program. And it allowed me to kind of kind of look at the specificity of music in its larger social, historical, cultural context. Mm-hmm. Because now, now you're at the University of South Florida, right? Uh, yeah. Now uh, I'm at the University of South Florida in a kind of interdisciplinary humanities department, uh, the humanities and cultural studies department. Right. Because your book, I mean, you get some pretty detailed musicological analysis, but then you, you do broaden it quite a bit to sociology and cultural studies, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to do that. I, I guess I see the book as somewhere between um, historical, mainly American studies work on American culture at this time in the 1930s and, and 40s, and, and musicology. Um, and uh, and that, that, I think that was very characteristic of the kind of program I went to, which uh, wasn't unique. There were others, but it's still, um, well, at the time was, was still not the, maybe the dominant mode of scholarship in musicology. And so to look at uh, the main concern, I think, that was imparted to me by my mentors in the program was the idea of music as meaning, um, sounds as meaning. Um, and uh, so I, I wanted to understand how jazz worked, uh, how music works on people, on listeners, on musicians, um, but then also how in, in a particular moment, uh, cultural context, how uh, how that music has has meaning, has real real content for people. And so to do that, you have to, you have to have some accounting of the musical sounds as well as uh, a familiarity with kind of larger historical and sociological studies of American life at that time. So backing up just a little, uh, how is it that you chose this music and this time period for your book? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's funny because when you're learning to play jazz, you're you're really learning a kind of bebop, post-bebop idiom of small ensemble groups, um, you know, focused heavily on improvisation and, and a lot less on reading. Though a lot of people who, who come to jazz in the United States often do through through high school big bands and things like that, which which are do involve arrangements and, and reading and maybe less improvisation. Um, and that was sort of my background as a kind of student of jazz as a musician. Um, and what was interesting is when you read the scholarship on jazz, it's so heavily weighted, actually, um, though that's changed, but it, it, it is, I mean, on, on, the, on the balance, it's heavily weighted toward early jazz in the 20s um, and, and sort of the before it, it kind of emerges into popular culture and the swing era. And the swing era becomes uh, pretty canonical in, in jazz writing, jazz historical writing, and figures such as Duke Ellington loom as central figures. I mean, the Ken Burns series was organized uh, around Armstrong and Ellington. And and there was this sort of disjunct, this divide between kind of contemporary jazz practice and the kind of canonical music. And so I became interested in trying to understand this this body of music, particularly the swing era, uh, because it was so touted and canonized in jazz scholarship, I wanted to understand more about sort of how it worked. Um, and it led me to kind of investigate it um, because it, it is, it's funny. I mean, despite revivals with things like jazz at Lincoln Center, it's still a body of music that you don't hear really in mainstream jazz. And so I was just very curious to try and understand how it was put together, how it worked. 
Um, and that's what, because because it was sort of strange, uh, not not uh, that strange, but I just wanted to understand more about its its kind of aesthetic orientation and and sort of how these musicians were creating it and what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And was there anything about the cultural landscape beyond uh, mm-hmm. the music that was interesting you as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I had to, I, I guess in kind of connection with this interest in the music was uh, I've always had a, a particular interest in the 1930s and the depression era. And, um, you know, now uh, I, I've actually taught courses in the 1930s and the 40s, uh, the Depression, the Second World War, a, a lot and, and sort of started to read a lot and watch a lot of movies and um, just became kind of really interested in uh, a lot of the kind of intellectual preoccupations of that era and the artistic preoccupations, um, the uh, in, in, in visual art and, and intellectual thought that there was a, a development of regionalism and a real focus on place in American life. Um, I, I was interested in kind of the fantasy culture of the thirties and forties um, because the, I we often stories will, um, in fact, I, would, I was teaching a class that was sort of the twenties into the thirties and, and it's, it's a, a nice class to teach because it's kind of broken by the great depression, you know, by the sort of stock market crash and you have the high living jazz age versus the great depression. And, but the thirties and forties are actually really interesting in that, um, the debates about regionalism, but also national identity, which becomes especially important during the war and trying to mobilize for the war effort. Um, and so, it kind of grew in tandem, but I, I did have a much broader interest in uh, kind of looking at the era. And I, I think the one of the crystallizing moments for the project, I think, um, both musically and, and in a broader cultural sense, was the essays that Warren Sussman wrote, I think, in the 1980s. They're real classics of American studies. Um, and he wrote some famous essays. One was called The Culture of Commitment. And they're extraordinary essays in the kind of breadth of material that Sussman covers, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse, board games, um, anthropological studies, uh, Hollywood film, you know, intellectual work uh, at the time. And, and that became the kind of model I was, I was sort of aspiring to, though, though focusing on music. I thought, you know, can I bring lots and lots of stuff in to kind of contextualize this music and, and kind of understand it in a new way. So theoretically, <laughs> your, your book focuses on the ideas of place and space <laughs> and geography yeah. and, and movement. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us about that, please. Yeah. Uh, so with this interest in this body of music from this era and these kind of larger uh, cultural texts of the era, you know, uh, well, Sussman in particular kind of was good at kind of picking out themes or patterns that seemed to res that seemed to kind of uh, shape very different kinds of activities, you know, uh, card games and movies and things like that. As I got interested in this period of music and this time period and started reading around in various kind of primary texts and secondary literature, um, I, I did notice a real concern with. Um, with place, with this idea of what what was America at this uh, in a time where um, you know by the 30s automobiles are are 
just a kind of fact of American life. Um, during the Depression, there are many stories of people not going without food, but not giving up their automobile, um, or at least when confronted with that choice. And it, it seemed like there are these this kind of centripetal and centrifugal forces of the era kind of drawing Americans together through a kind of new mass culture um, facilitated by modern developments like automobiles and road building and particularly radio and film. Uh, and it just seemed to kind of pop up again and again in a lot of writing. Um, in in African-American cultural texts, there was uh, a lot of writing was focused on what Farrah Jasmine Griffin called a migration narrative. Um, and you start to see that a lot where um, black musicians of the era are, um, and, and I write about this, that Ellington in particular was, he wrote, often wrote pieces kind of explicitly themed about the South or titled about the South. And, and there was a sense of kind of wrestling with that migratory move. Um, you know, uh, this is after the Great Migration, but still there's the, the, the flow is definitely from the South to the North. Um, and so I started to see this kind of preoccupation with place and, and kind of a correlate to that was movement, because if you were moving, you weren't kind of in place anywhere or rooted. Um, and of course, in, in kind of the larger society and white society, there was uh, regionalist painters and, um, uh, and a kind of tension between uh, oh, the documentary uh, photography of the era is very much about sort of capturing not only the kind of um, struggles of Americans during the Depression, uh, all those farm security administration photos, but, um, you know, it's part of kind of a larger project to sort of document American life. And there's a kind of folk music revival at the time. And, and so like everywhere I look, there seemed to be this kind of preoccupation with trying to understand what this country was, you know, was it a bunch of just regions, you know, kind of loosely stuck together through a federal government and a, you know, and a national mass culture, or was there kind of some more unifying cultural forces kind of tying Americans together? So uh, it just, it seemed like a logical thing to do to see, well, did, did big band dance music, which was not the only, but was a dominant form of popular music at the time, did that similarly express this, kind of this questioning or this concern with place and American, the notion of what American place was and how did mobility and the increasing mobility people uh, affect or change or challenge existing ideas of what America as a place was. Mm -hmm. And you've already kind of mentioned it, but uh, how does race play into this story of, of place and space? I mean, it's part of the title of your book, the subtitle. Yeah. It, I started off thinking in kind of general space and place terms and reading first theoretical literature and trying to find the various kind of manifestations of this concern in various cultural texts and in particular in, in music. Um, but of course, when you're talking about jazz, uh, it's virtually impossible to, and you know, frankly, undesirable or um, to not deal with race in a substantive way. It just doesn't make sense. And um, at the largest level, um, all this discussion and concern over place and mobility um, is kind of overlaid on, on a, a long-standing division in American society uh, along racial terms and most, most strongly around, around white and black in, in those terms. 
the uh, cultural preoccupation with place and space during this era was kind of overlaid on this American ideology of race that was primarily structured around a white-black binary. And, um, and segregation is, is kind of the most obvious example of that, where space is literally carved out and uh, divided between white and black. And, um, and of course, whenever you're writing about jazz, it, it, is, it is a complicated music with a complicated history that is deeply entwined uh, between whites and blacks, um, Southerners and Northerners. Um, so it's, it's kind of impossible uh, not to deal with this. And, and the more I got into this, the more it seemed like the argument I'm making was not simply that music was, this music was representing or trying to come to terms with place and movement in this era, but that it was simultaneously um, a wrestling with, with race and the kind of distribution of people in the United States and, and what that meant. And, um, and of course, mobility in cars made things fluid and kind of undermined or could possibly undermine segregation or cause backlashes against it. And of course, um, in the North where there wasn't necessarily um, legal segregation, there were kind of structural inequalities which kept whites and blacks apart. And, um, and so it, it kind of, they became a pair. They became, it was impossible to talk about music as a representation or experience of American place without talking it as, as a, a, having a racial component, that you are occupying a white or a black space. Because that was largely how, it seems to me, how people at the time understood it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, then your, your book is... is uh... Is, is organized around four core chapters, and each chapter uh, covers a certain band, artist, musician, and a few places as well. So let's start with chapter one, and you uh, write about the casino ballroom on Santa Catalina Island. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, that, that started um, as uh, I, I trip. I'd, I'd been to Catalina Island many years ago, and the uh, small island uh, uh, off the coast of Southern California near Los Angeles and Long Beach. And it was, I think, about a two-hour ferry ride. And uh, it's, today it's a major tourist attraction, though it's uh, kind of some very well-heeled Southern Californians own land there and kind of vacation there. But it's still built around tourism, but it was nothing like it was in the kind of early 20th century. And when I went to visit, it has a cute little downtown and um, take tours of the island. And kind of the centerpiece of the experience of the island is this massive ballroom movie theater called the Casino Ballroom. And uh, the Wrigley family um, developed the island in the 1920s after they bought it from uh, 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 it, some previous owners, uh, I think railroad tycoons, if I remember, and the Wrigley Empire built around chewing gum and uh, based in Chicago and uh, William Wrigley and then his son Philip Wrigley uh, took Catalina and kind of transformed into this kind of middle class resort, or at least that was, you know, they wanted it to be affordable and the place where you could go and leave the hustle and bustle of the city and see nature and sit at the beach. And they also wanted a kind of entertainment venue um, and so uh, in the late 20s, William Wrigley uh, had built this massive complex. It's, uh, it's 
circular. It's very dramatic. It sits out on this point that looks out over the ocean. About three quarters of it, you can see the ocean. And uh, as the ferries come in, you, it's like one of the first things you see uh, on the island. Um, on the first floor, they built a movie theater. And on the second, there's a bunch of very long ramps that go up to the second floor. They built a really uh, pretty gorgeous ballroom and with these windows overlooking the ocean. Um, and so when you go to Catalina today, even, it's, uh, they give tours of this. And it's, it's a really beautiful building. It's a kind of really nice example of Art Deco architecture. It has these beautiful kind of uh, murals on the side, um, these mosaics. And, uh, and so I was interested in jazz, and it was a big band ballroom. And, they, and you take the tour, and they tell you all about the bands that played there. And they say, uh, on the tour, it's often like, well, Benny Goodman played here, and Kay Kaiser. And okay, so at the time, I was like, well, all right, Benny Goodman I know. And Kay Kaiser I vaguely know, kind of a sweet band leader, you know, not part of the kind of jazz canon. And then you go downstairs, and there's a little museum, and it tells you about the island and the development of the casino. And there's a, a kind of uh, a, a group of pictures of the bands that played there. And what's really interesting is they kind of, the tour guides would sort of talk about the venue as a major swing era venue, but only mention Benny Goodman. It was like, well, where's everyone else? I mean, you know, the Jimmy Dorsey's, the Duke Ellington's, um, you know, there's, there's you know, hundreds, hundreds, 300 plus name bands in the country. And when you look through those photos, until you get to the 1960s, you really don't see, in fact, you don't see any black bands at all. And in addition, what you don't see are any bands that are familiar names, really. Jan Garber, Dick Jurgens, Dick Jurgens, um, Freddie Martin, Kay Kaiser. I mean, Kay Kaiser is probably the best known, um, but not often not by jazz uh, jazz people. So um, it was, you know, so that chapter grew out of this particular experience and, and, and said, so what kind of venue was this? Who was playing this venue? And, and it, this, this seemed really a kind of window into an aspect of the dance band culture in American life at this time that was really not covered very well in existing scholarship, either from jazz or American studies. Um, and the more I got into this, um, Really, I, what became clear to me is that this was a very particular kind of swing venue and that there were others like this around the country, that it catered to a uh, almost exclusively white audience, uh, largely middle class, though it's, it's hard to determine who exactly went there, and that they featured a particular kind of strand of big band dance music that was understood at the time as sweet, which was that basically a kind of rhythmically less aggressive, melodically heavy, um, very kind of based in Tim Pan Alley ballads and songs, though not exclusively, um, versus uh, hot music, which was associated with black bands, which featured um, faster tempos, um, more elaborate arrangements, more improvisation. Um, and so this sweet band music was the music of choice for this venue. And that's odd um, when you step back because venues, even in places you would not think um, would want it, would feature mixes of hot and, and sweet. And um, the hot bands were often uh, black bands and the sweet bands were often white. But if you look at venues all throughout the American South and the West, 
Um, it was it was common even in the most segregated parts of the South to have a variety of music and especially to have black bands one week and white bands the next. Now, the patrons would be segregated, um, but it, the idea of having blacks entertaining whites was was not a problem at all. So it was really striking that the casino ballroom featured white bands playing this particular kind of sweet jazz um, for basically most of the 30s. Um, they start incorporating more pop bands, and Benny Goodman is, is the kind of one of the first of that kind that they invite, and it's not until 19, I think, 41 that he's there. Um, and uh, basically at the kind of the end of the height of the casino ballroom, because by World War II, uh, that ballroom is not really being used anymore, and the island's converted to kind of wartime mobilization. Um, and so that's what motivated the chapter, um, was it just became this question of why these sweet bands, why only white bands? Because black bands could also play sweet. Um, bands were, as I write, were, you know, artistic entities, but commercial entities, and they would play music that patrons wanted. And there are many stories of this, of Andy Kirk or even Duke Ellington. Andy Kirk was a famous black band leader playing waltzes or polkas if that's what the community they wanted. Um, so that's what kind of spurred the chapter and led me to kind of uh, try to answer that. And ultimately what I came up with was this idea that the, that the Wrigley's and the Santa Catalina Island Company, which is the kind of corporation that, that owned the island and ran the island, that the Wrigley vision of the island required that even the sounds that people heard be part of kind of overall experience. And, and that experience was one of a kind of nostalgic modernism, kind of sense that the island had everything you wanted of modern American life, um, but without kind of the complicated or um, maybe perhaps unpleasant aspects of intense developments of modern life and all this mobility and movement that could bring, say, unwanted people to your venue, um, mainly blacks, but in, certainly in Southern California, Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans as well. Um, so it, it became pretty clear that the music was part of this kind of tourist and ecological project, a particular kind of white middle-class resort that was both modern and convenient, but yet kind of or, or kind of push away some of the more democratizing or pluralizing elements of American life at that time. Um, at least that's what I argue, argue for. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't know. I worked a lot at the, at the archive there. They, they actually have quite a lot of good material and um, they were very nice and very receptive to me. And, you know, I, I think I sent them, it was a journal article first and then kind of revised. For the, and I don't know. I don't know if I, I never asked them to kind of change the tour. Or anything, but but um, uh, it was just a, a, it was a really interesting project. And it kind of opens a whole new door into this era um, that really ends up helping you bridge kind of the jazz writing that has developed around swing era jazz and the American studies writing, because this was a music created actually kind of together with and in response to hot jazz. So the sweet jazz, the music at the casino ballroom is kind of like, it, it is dance band jazz. There's no doubt about it. These bands look the same. Um, say the Duke Ellington Orchestra 
uh, or the Jimmy Lunsford Band, another black band, looked like the Jan Garber Band. I mean, they dressed in sharp suits. They both were horn-based bands that they include the same instruments. They often use the same repertory of songs and that there were specific kind of musical dimensions in terms of arrangement, in terms of approaches to rhythm, uh, and approaches to improvisation and to the presentation of melody that kind of mark them and separate them out. Um, so even if you didn't have to say that this is say a, a white venue, you know, the music could kind of say that for you in a lot of ways, or at least that's what I posit the Wrigley's kind of were thinking, or I can't know that, but, but that was the effect of their policies. I think. Mm-hmm. So then on to chapter two, where you focus on uh, Charlie Barnett as an artist and the Meadowbrook Inn as a place. Uh, talk about them, please. Uh, you know, as I was doing the book, it, it became clear to me, or this through the editorial process, this was made clear that the first chapter is very much about this place, and I focus a lot on Jan Garber, particular band, his interesting history and um, his history is interesting because he went kind of hot and sweet and hot and sweet. He kind of went back and forth depending on the kind of commercial winds of the time. Um, so it was kind of focused a lot on this place through this particular artist. And then the second chapter, Charlie Barnett, was uh, very much about Barnett, but it became a lot about another venue, the Meadowbrook Inn, which ends up being a, a, a kind of counterpoint to the casino ballroom. And... Uh, in some ways, the casino ballroom in its scale, its scope, um, and even in, in, the, in, in the kind of bands that played there is actually somewhat unusual. The Meadowbrook Inn is, is much more typical dance venue, um, but it's, it has certain elements that are unusual as well. And it reflects a kind of very different concerns. That's a venue that was created by this guy, Frank Daly, um, in the late 20s. He was a musician and his, he was with a band and it didn't quite work out and I guess he, him or his band, they bought this, um, this kind of this building, this uh, structure, and uh, made it a, a dance hall. Um, you know, uh, and that dance hall was in off the Pompton Turnpike uh, in New Jersey, and it's just five to ten miles from Manhattan, from the kind of hothouse of the swing era of jazz uh, um, at the time. And so the venue was very close to Manhattan, but, but separate, clearly suburban. And to get to the car, um, as far as I can tell, you really couldn't take a train. I mean, you took a train, you'd have, still have to take a car. So it wasn't, it wasn't rural, it was suburban. And it was very close to New York. Um, so it attracted many of the biggest named bands in, in, uh, uh, very differently than... Um, than the casino ballroom, who, who had big names, but of this very particular kind of sweet kind. But the Meadowbrook Ballroom had, you know, just everyone and um, became a major venue for uh, the Dorseys, for Glenn Miller early on. Um, black bands played there, white bands played there. When I looked into it, it turns out the venue was, uh, did have segregated policies in terms of uh, who could who could attend. Uh, it was from what I could tell, largely a white venue. I, I found some article of, uh, of reminiscences from someone from uh, uh, um, an African-American from Newark talking about his high school prom was there and he couldn't go because it was a whites-only venue. And uh, um, 
so it, it, it was it, it had elements of seg- I mean it was segregated um, at least from what I can tell uh, most of the time um, but it featured white and black bands it featured hot and sweet bands um, and mainly because of its proximity to New York but it, it also had a radio control booth that could remotely broadcast and the casino barroom had this too it was put in a little later um, and that's that helped the casino barroom achieve um, kind of national exposure. Uh, but the Meadowbrook was, was I, I think, arguably the more, the better known venue. Um, and of course, having a radio link was very attractive for any band um, because you, these were live radio remotes. Uh, sometimes they were recorded, they were often broadcast live and transmitted across the country. And when people heard you, uh, they could get you more gigs and, um, you know, get you on the road. And, and at the time, um, you know, it was, it was nice uh, for a traveling band to spend a long time in a single venue, say a week at the Meadowbrook Inn or a hotel in New York or even the casino ballroom. But the real money was in these one-nighters, actually. And that, you know, created actually a kind of brutal schedule. So anyway. So there's this venue, the Meadowbrook Inn. It seems to it has some similarities to the casino ballroom, but represents, uh, I think, ultimately a very different kind of kind of ballroom experience in, in the music culture at the time. And um, it just seemed like an interesting uh, counterpoint. But then, of course, I, I found about the Meadowbrook Inn because of this Charlie Barnett tune called Pompton Turnpike. And um, I, I was interested in Barnett. Barnett's... A, extraordinarily colorful character uh, by swing era standards. Um, he had multiple marriages. He, uh, he had to publish music under pseudonyms so he couldn't be sued for alimony. He was a big practical joker. Um, he recounts in his autobiography, which is very funny and entertaining, um, that they did practical jokes. They drank a lot. They did drugs. They, you know, there's talk of prostitution. I mean, it's, it's like, it's kind of like a rock and roll biography of the swing. Hmm. And it, it, it's fun. And um, it's funny, though, at the end, Barnett kind of has a, a digression where he talks about how, how awful he thinks pop music is and rock and roll. It's, just a, it's kind of funny. Uh, paper in there somewhere. Um, and so Barnett uh, was this incredibly hmm. character that hasn't really been written about. And his music is interesting because he was celebrated as kind of the among the hottest or often considered the hottest of the white bands, someone who explicitly embraced black vernacular practice of music that sounded black. Um, and But even more than that, Barnett's kind of explicitly embraced the black community in a way that, that artists like Benny Goodman, for all his work integrating bands at the time, didn't. Um, Goodman has been written about a lot, and he was somewhat aloof and distant and uh, kind of very serious guy, and Barnett was the kind of total opposite. And the band had a kind of looser sound. He started hiring musicians very early. I don't think he fully integrated that band until the 40s, which is after Goodman, but he um, he had moments of integrated, times where his band was integrated before Benny Goodman, so he was in a sense a pioneer in that, in that way. Um, and his whole career seemed to be about movement and mobility, both musically and geographically. And so I came across this tune, The Pompton Turnpike, and I investigated, you know, so what, like singing, a, like naming a song after a highway in New Jersey just seemed, it just doesn't seem that glamorous, but 
It seemed to me that it was a relatively new road at the time. It was a suburban experience. It was something removed from Manhattan. And then it, it, I think it did have a sense at the time, you know, calling something that popped in Turnpike of, of movement, of the open road, of, you know, I mean, it's not like traveling the highways out west or something like that. But it definitely had that kind of um, meaning, I think, that, that was sort of attached to it. And, but it still struck me as odd. So that got me into both Barnett as a musician, but also into, into the Pompton Turnpike. And of course, you, you, once you read about that, you realize that, that it's called the Pompton Turnpike. Uh, he called, Barnett called the tune Pompton Turnpike because it was an ode to the Meadowbrook Inn. Um, and therefore, then I had this connection between this artist, this song, this venue, and this kind of suburban place uh, that was kind of accessible through automobiles, and that it seemed to represent something new, something special. Um, and then I, I started to see the idea of mobility and movement as a kind of organizing metaphor for understanding Barnett's life. He was he embraced the jazz life from very early and loved to travel. And, um, and, it, and he moved both literally across the country, but, but through his music, it became increasingly moved toward hot music. And he, he hired black musicians. He was voted, he came close to becoming an honorary mayor of Harlem. He also played um, the kind of black circuit of theaters, the Toba circuit, the theater of black owners, a theater owner, Theater owners, uh, I can't remember the uh, exact, uh, but the Toba circuit was it was black theaters throughout the country, um, largely in the north, and uh, he played that circuit of theaters, a theater owner booking association. That's what it was, and uh, he played that circuit. Um, so he seemed like a special case and like very different than Jan Garber, um, and uh, that's that's sort of how that chapter kind of came about. And it let me talk about another venue with a kind of a different artist with a different set of priorities, but both um, combining a kind of music and place in, in, the, in the context of the 30s um, and in modernization at the time. Chapter three, then, you focus on... Uh... Duke Ellington and and lots of movement and migration and you specifically focus when it comes to place I guess on a specific performance the 1946 Chicago Civic Opera House performance and even some movements uh, within that performance so uh, tell us about Duke Ellington please yeah so uh, and then so the next two chapters the Ellington and Christian chapters are, are really kind of focused on movement and less about particular places though there is a kind of central place in the Ellington chapter, and that's the Chicago Civic Opera House in a concert they did in 1946. And I chose that concert for a variety of reasons. I I, I kind of discovered it because it was one of the few concerts that this French, uh, this Parisian gypsy guitarist, Django Reinhardt, came to the United States and toured with Ellington. And that's the only recorded encounter of Django Reinhardt and Ellington. And I've written about that elsewhere um, and the more I looked at the concert, the more sort of interesting it became as a kind of symbol or example of, of a, a variety of things about Ellington at that time. Um, the shift Ellington's band took from playing, um, say, nightclubs like the Cotton Club in the late 20s and early 30s 
to dance halls, to theaters. And he was moving increasingly into theaters, and, and, and that trend would kind of continue through the 50s um, as jazz took on more of an aura of art music and less kind of popular music. Um, and, of course, you look at Ellington's catalog, and, and even more so than these other musicians, um, there was a very clear and explicit preoccupation with place. And these are in, largely reflected in the, um, the titles of the pieces. And, uh, and titles can be tricky because in instrumental pieces without lyrics, um, there's anecdotes and lots of evidence that jazz musicians often name things for uh, arbitrary reasons or silly reasons. Um, but regardless, titles um, well, regardless of that, titles are always at least partly constitutive of meaning. So it's, you can listen to a song, and, um, and, but you're always going to know the title, and that title is always going to shape your reception of that song. And, and so I believe that the, the connection, whether it's intentional by the artist or not, um, has, is valuable. It has, it has meaning, interpretive meaning uh, to understanding the tune. But with Ellington, though, it goes even further because Ellington has written a lot. He spoke a lot of spoken introductions. He took, did a lot of interviews. He wrote his own autobiography. So the preoccupation with place is actually quite explicit with him. It's not, not something that takes a lot of analysis. I mean, he has music that talks a lot about Harlem, and he has music that talks a lot about the South. Um, and, and his music is a kind of atlas, uh, a geography of, of places and place experiences. And the Chicago concert kind of embodied a lot of those trends. Uh, you could kind of see a lot of the music. And, and the piece that drew me in particular was the Deep South Suite, which was, as he moved into theaters, he, he was shifting the kinds of musical styles, the kind of musical works that they were playing. And so they would play all their three-minute dance numbers or their records, their famous records, um, often in medleys. And he started featuring these larger and more ambitious works. Um, 1943's Black, Brown, and Beige is perhaps the most famous. And throughout the 40s, he did these Carnegie Hall, these annual Carnegie Hall concerts, where he featured these kind of ambitious works. Most of them were becoming suites, so kind of three or four movement works with, um, that, that weren't necessarily like integrated musically, but were thematically connected. Um, and the Deep South Suite was, was among these. And it was interesting because it was about the Deep South. And it, it not only did it work the titles of the works, the Deep South Suite, and then the first movement was uh, Magnolias Dripping with Molasses, and then a second movement called Hearsay, and the third movement was When um, they Thought No One Was Looking, I think. And the final movement was Happy Go Lucky. And uh, the middle two movements are kind of oblique. But the third movement was about a train, and it sounds like a train. It was one of these Ellington train pieces. But along with the titles, and the title was sweet, of course, Ellington had um, kind of written program notes, or at least spoken them. And there's a VDIS recording, the Deep South Suite, with, I think, Leonard Feather speaking the Ellington um, uh, story, uh, this, these kind of liner notes. And so it, it's attracted a lot of attention by Ellington scholars because it is such a... Uh, a kind of detailed, um, uh, you know, musical portrait of the South. And, and a lot of the focus on the Deep South Suite was whether this was a political or ironic commentary on the South. And certainly if you listen to Allington's work, if you read his program, 
um, in its various forms, as Leonard Feather reads it, or in his, uh, he includes it in his autobiography in the 1970s. And um, you, it's very interesting because he provides a sort of literary text that goes with the music and it sort of begs to be read together. And traditionally, the Deep South Suite was read as a critique of the South. Um, naturally for its segregation, the violence, the lynchings, um, all those things. But as I got into it and, and you kind of situated among these other place themes, um, you realize that the Deep South Suite, at least to me it seemed, was much more ambivalent and ambiguous and that the irony is easier to identify through the, through the words than the music. And, and the music uh, takes you through a range of emotions, a kind of trajectory of, of kind of uh, trajectory, emotional trajectory, a cognitive trajectory of various kinds of moods and feelings and tempos. And it just seemed like to call the piece ironic or critical was just very simplistic. And it seemed to me the piece embodied a much more contradictory statement about the South. And of course that tied into a much broader preoccupation of, uh, of, of cultural texts that engaged with the South, in particular in the context of a, of a migration narrative. Um, so you have, uh, for instance, Richard Wright's Native Son is a really brutal uh, um, kind of devastating depiction of the urban black experience of, in, in the North. And um, Zora Neale Hurston wrote of Mules and Men, a kind of oral history of collection of folk stories that's really affectionate and very powerful in its own way about the South. So the, the feelings among these African-American artists and intellectuals and writers, uh, it was far more ambivalent. And, and I think that piece captures that ambivalence very well. In addition, it, it's, we tend to hear Ellington's pieces as Ellington, as this sort of statement of Ellington. And of course it wasn't. It was a band of many people and it was a complex organism, and there's many voices. And within that Deep South Suite, we hear solo voices, lots of solo voices, and they are often saying things musically that kind of go with the suite, but also are at odds with the suite. So it's interesting that the only, there are a few direct references or, or kind of musical signs or sort of semiotics of the South in that piece. And they're very few, and they're really not in the parts that Ellington wrote. They're in the parts that are improvised, like Lawrence Brown's trombone solo, where he quotes um, Old Folks at Home, the Stephen Foster minstrel tune. And there's uh, Jimmy Hamilton's clarinet references when the saints go marching in. And so the chapter let me explore a place. The Ellington band is the sort of nomadic, nomadic place-creating phenomenon, and also as a complicated kind of symbol of the black experience at that time. And it's kind of coping with migration and movement. Um, and what a perfect example to express that than through a band that was almost totally nomadic, that just did nothing but move and travel. And then there's chapter four, the, uh, the, the fourth of your core uh, chapters. And this deals with the guitarist, Charlie Christian. And this, this seems, as you just mentioned, this seems to be another kind of nomadic uh, theme in that chapter. Yeah, yeah. Christian is this um, greatly celebrated uh, jazz guitarist. He's, he's important. Um, he's often celebrated as this kind of link between swing era jazz and bebop. And that <clears throat> he, he started improvising in ways that seem that we look back now as proto bebop, as these long, linear, chromatically inflected solo lines 
um, that were rhythmically adventurous, melodically adventurous, harmonically adventurous. And uh, Christians, uh, I, I'm a jazz drummer and a guitarist, and I kind of took up the guitar later. Um, and Christian is this really important figure. And, uh, and the first time I heard it, the music just was totally captivating. Um, he has a kind of energy and a drive. And, and by all accounts, he played loud by the time period. He was one of the earliest electric guitarists, not the first, but um, and there's a, his sound is really striking. It's got a slight kind of distorted edge to it, just a little. And, um, and it's just totally gripping and it's fascinating and it's fascinated a lot of people and very, very influential. And as I, I, so I was interested in Christian and of course the other component to his influence or to the story of Charlie Christian is this kind of rags to riches, this local Oklahoma city musician who becomes picked up by Benny Goodman, the, you know, the biggest swing era big band and made into a star like virtually overnight. And the story of Christian's discovery is, is like a very kind of classic kind of archetypical American uh, kind of entertainment story uh, uh, where, where this kind of unknown talent is sort of discovered and, and uh, rises to national prominence. And as I looked into the story, it, it seemed to become as much about Christian's, his obvious talent and abilities. And um, he's, he's really discovered by John Hammond, uh, music producer, critic, writer, and introduced to Goodman. But um, Christian's story is also this interesting regional to national story. And that seemed to reflect all these other concerns that I had developed about place and movement during the era. And Christian really crystallized this kind of underlying social development that was often not talked about when people talk about Christian and that, that was this tension between the regional and the national. And uh, Susan Douglas, uh, the radio historian, has a, has a great essay about um, radio from the 30s and comedy programs. She has this interesting part about Amos and Andy, how, um, well, that was a, a, essentially a blackface skit, but but it was also uh, embodied sort of regional distinctiveness, a particular way of talking um, that was uh, very specific to, to say, the South. Um, and so Christian's music, his life experiences seemed to tap into the very same cultural phenomenon. There seemed to be this, um, this similar phenomenon of a move from the region to the nation or this tension between the local and the increasingly centralized, nationalized culture of America during the Depression and the war. And so I, in the chapter, I trace Christian's, uh, his musical development, his musical style, and kind of map that on to this larger story of the move from the region to the nation. And uh, Christian's musical style um, has certain characteristics about it that are very consistent and have to do with the kind of his, his approach to different parts of kind of conventional jazz tunes. So for instance, in most uh, jazz tune from the swing era, you're either playing a blues, a 12-bar blues, or a 32-bar AABA Tin Pan Alley form. And in the Tin Pan Alley forms, Christian played very bluesy over the A sections and then developed this really um, vibrant, linear, chromatic, long melodies through the, through the bridge sections. And the bridge sections often featured more harmonic complexity, key changes, um, or, or sort of uh, dominant seven chords that sort of follow one another. And, and it was like an obstacle course. So um, it seemed to me Christian's style, it's the very core of his playing, the bones of his 
formal approach to music also seem to echo the tensions of local culture, say blues culture in, in Oklahoma City, and a kind of growing national jazz language that was more chromatic, that was moving toward, eventually moving toward bebop. So then, uh, you wrap up the, the book in your conclusion uh, with a story about Jimmy Lunsford, and you link this to the incre- increasingly popular uh, transportation of, of airline flights. So, so conclude our interview with this, please. So the, the final chapter, um, I kind of developed in, in an odd way. I, I was so focused on automobiles and, and, and trains and, um, and, and, and that kind of movement and migrations of people. And then, of course, as this happens, sort of listening to tunes, you come across ones that kind of jump out at you. And uh, uh, Jimmy Lunsford's music and this tune, Stratosphere in particular, um, I, I found an anthology of big band jazz, a very good one that Gunther Schuller and Martin Williams put together. Um, it's a little hard to find. Uh, and the, the tune was striking both musically and, and, and the title was very obviously very evocative. And so I wanted to kind of flesh that out. And as I, as I kind of dug into the tune and started thinking about it and reading about it and reading about Jimmy Lunsford, um, I suddenly realized I had a lot of connections to what had come before in the book. And so, so the connections kind of unfold like this. So, one point of the book that I wanted to make was that despite the division of the industry into white and black and hot and sweet, the interconnections among musicians were, were pretty profound. For instance, Charlie Barnett gets started with Jan Garber's discarded arrangements of, of, uh, of Tim Pan Alley tunes. Um, and Jan Garber plays, records a version of Avalon, uh, a song that Al Jolson made famous in 1920. And there are lots of recordings of Avalon, and I found a Lunsford recording of Avalon, which I use to kind of compare the Garber recording in the Avalon chapter. And uh, Garber, uh, I mean, and Lunsford's music um, seemed to be not something talked about that much. It was very interesting, very compelling music. And his biography becomes really interesting. He was, um, along with Ellington, uh, among the top, say, two or three or five band, black bands in the country. He had a very particular style, a very identifiable rhythmic signature, this kind of Lunsford two-beat that was somewhat at odds with the dominant kind of strong 4-4 swing feel um, that had come to characterize most of swing or dance band music, both white and black. And of course, Lunsford was obsessed with airplanes. I thought this is perfect. (laughs) You know, it all kind of, all the pieces sort of fit together. And that led me to kind of explore um, Lunsford's fascination with airplanes in a larger context of African-American interest in airplanes and air flight and into a kind of um, through a a really terrific Ralph Ellison story called Flying Home, which was great because that was the name of of the the Christian tunes that I analyzed the most in the Christian chapter Um, that Ellison story is about a pilot training uh, during, I think, World War II, and he crashes, and he sort of crashes back in time on a sort of plantation-like part of the South, and he's a a modern African-American. He's sort of thrust back into the past, and through the course of the story, you get told this myth of the flying African, uh, a kind of folklore that had been told, carried with slaves, and sort of developed in the New World, and it basically involved this idea of uh, a mythical or shamanistic figure, um, kind of talking, uh, allowing blacks to fly back to Africa. 
And, uh, and that was also nice. And so you, I could kind of situate Lunsford's in, interest in flying both with technology and modernism of the 30s, but with African-American history. And to see that song Stratosphere as a kind of reflection of this, of what flight meant to perhaps Lunsford and to the black community, and then and, and what flight meant to Americans uh, at large, because flight represented a kind of a future-oriented, a, a progressive vision, a kind of 1939 World's Fair optimism about technological development and mobility and movement to kind of free Americans from existing racial structures and, and racism. And so it, Lunsford ended up being an excellent way to kind of tie all the themes of the books together and, and kind, of, kind of look toward the future uh, beyond the 30s and 40s. Uh, um, uh, thanks for being on our sh- our show, Andy. And you know, if nothing else, I mean, there's lots of great stuff in your book. Uh, if nothing else, though, I think it, it shows how well, uh, or you do a, a great job of showing how we can use music, which is oftentimes considered kind of trivial, and, and explore larger uh, cultural themes with it. Um, uh, what are you up to now? Do you have any projects you're working on? Uh, yeah, actually, it's, it's funny you say that because that, I think that's a good statement of, of what, I, what I think I'm, at least I think I'm trying to do. And, and that's the idea of music as, as a source of historical information. And I was actually a, studied history as an undergrad and came to music, like academic music study, musicology, music theory, kind of late. And I've, I've always been interested, well, I was always frustrated by um, a lot of American history and American studies with how vague discussions of music became. And, and because I had played some music and had some familiarity, it seemed to me that there was, you were missing something. I mean, we go to music for a lot of reasons, um, primary being the sounds, the actual sounds that we hear, the vibrating ear that enters our ear, that affects our, our minds and our bodies. And that became really important to me. And I, I think my next project um, kind of developing out of the Avalon chapter. I got interested in um, sort of Timpan Alley from the 30s and 40s. Again, a a very canonical topic in American, the study of American popular music. It's the golden age of American song. But the sweet band stuff I did made me interested in how vast the Timpan Alley catalog was and how diverse it was in terms of musical style and that vast amounts of it are, are just not heard or studied about or talked about. And so I I really want to get into a lot of that, particularly tunes that are often dismissed as ballads or sentimental or novelty tunes as sources of historical information, new windows into this this time period in American life. So that's kind of where I'm headed. Well, um, thank you for being on the the show, uh, Andy, and uh, good luck in your future work. You've been listening to a conversation with Andrew S. Barish about his book, Lonesome Roads and Streets of Dreams place, mobility, and race in jazz in the 1930s and 40s, published by the University of Chicago in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Marmon. Thanks for listening.